0: Chapter 6, Part 1 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Incheon-Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Hitting the Beaches The concept of the amphibious envelopment of the North Korean People's Army, together with the actual assault on Incheon by United States Marines, constituted heresy to that school of wishful thinkers which sprang to life as World War II faded in the first brilliant flashes of the Atomic Age. Widely accepted and noisily proclaimed was the belief, perhaps sincere, perhaps convenient, that the nuclear and aeronautical sciences had relegated armies, navies, and man himself to insignificant positions in the waging of war. The massing of ships and field forces, it was argued, was a thing of the past. For the next war, if humanity dared risk another, would be decided in weeks or even days with the power unleashed by electronic and mechanical devices, many of which in 1950 were still in rudimentary stages on drawing boards. This was the controversial push-button theory of war which left the peace-loving nations of the world unprepared in 1950 for violent aggression by the tough little peasant army of North Korea supported by some one hundred tanks and a few hundred artillery pieces. And to the premature acceptance of this theory by a large section of the American public may be attributed many of the major shortcomings of the Incheon assault, as it unfolded in the evening of 15 September. That the operation succeeded despite these shortcomings and the myriad natural handicaps amounts almost to a tactical miracle. In the words of General Smith, Half of the problem was in getting to Inchon at all. The tremendous obstacles overcome in solving that half of the problem have already been treated at length, and it remains now in the short space of a chapter to show how the other half became history. The Assault Plan Aboard the Henrico and Cavalier in the Inchon Narrows on 15 September were the 1st and 2nd Battalions, 5th Marines, Yanked out of the Pusan perimeter ten days earlier. Having had no time for a rehearsal and only a few days for planning on the basis of admittedly sketchy intelligence, these two units would scale the seawall of Red Beach and plunge into the dense waterfront area of the sprawling seaport. The mission of the 5th Marines, less three five on Wolmido, was to seize the OA line, a three thousand yard arc encompassing Cemetery Hill on the left, north. Observatory Hill in the center, and thence extending the last 1,000 yards through a maze of buildings and streets to terminate at the intertidal basin. Each battalion would land in a column of companies, Lieutenant Colonel George R. Newton's first on the left, seizing Cemetery Hill and the northern half of Observatory Hill, while Lieutenant Colonel Harold S. Royce's second secured the remainder of the latter, the hill of the British Consulate, and the intertidal basin. Landing nearly three miles southeast of the 5th Marines, the 1st Regiment would seize Blue Beach, a north-south strip fronting a suburban industrial area. Blue Beach 1, on the left, was 500 yards wide, flanked on the north by the rock revetment of a salt evaporator that jutted into the water at a sharp angle to the shoreline. A wide drainage ditch, about which little was known besides the fact that it existed, formed the south boundary. Just inland, a dirt road, the sole exit from the beach, skirted the north end of a steep knoll that ran the whole width of the landing site. There being no revetment at the waterline, marine planners hoped that amphibian tractors could crawl ashore with the assault troops. Blue Beach 2, connected to one by the drainage ditch, also extended 500 yards. Like Red Beach, it was fronted by a rock seawall. On the right half, the wall retained one side of a narrow ramp that jutted southward like a long index finger. Behind the ramp lay a cove, its shoreline at a right angle to the seawall. During the assault, Marines would scale the waterfront of Blue 2 from LVTs, while the cove around the corner on the right, unofficially dubbed Blue Beach 3, was investigated as a possible supplementary landing site. Preceded by a wave of LVTAs of Company A, Reinforced, 56th Amphibian Tractor Battalion, U.S. Army, the 2nd and 3rd Battalions, 1st Marines, would land abreast on Blue 1 and 2, respectively. With two companies initially in the assault, each of the infantry battalions was to drive forward and secure its portion of the O-1 line, This four-mile arc bent inland as far as 3,000 yards to include four main objectives assigned as follows. 2nd Battalion, Blue 1. Able, a critical road junction about 1,000 yards northeast of the beach. Dog, Hill 117, 3,000 yards northeast of the beach, commanding Inchon's back door and the highway leading to Seoul, 22 miles away. 3rd Battalion, Blue 2. Charlie, the seaward tip of Hill 233, a long east-west ridge beginning 1,500 yards southeast of the beach and blocking off the stubby Munhang Peninsula, which projected southward. Baker, a small cape topped by Hill 94 to the right of Objective Charlie and flanking Blue Beach. While a question may arise as to the choice of landing the 5th Marines in the very heart of Inchon, it must be remembered that immediate seizure of the port facilities was vital to the success of the operation. Hitting the beaches at only two-thirds infantry strength, the 1st Marine Division could not swell to the overwhelming proportions of an invasion force. A modern harbor for rapid buildup and exploitation by Ten Corps figured inherently in MacArthur's strategy. If Red Beach thus constituted the critical objective— then the selection of Blue Beach for a supporting landing followed in logical sequence. Once on the O-1 line, the 1st Marines would flank the single overland approach to the peninsular seaport, thereby presenting the NKPA garrison with the grim alternatives of early flight, capitulation, or strangulation. Without this leverage on Inchon's flank and rear, the 5th Regiment could easily be swallowed up by two square miles of dense urban area. Four assault battalions would have two hours of daylight in which to bridge the gap between planning and reality. From overhead and behind, they could expect a preponderance of heavy fire support, but ahead lay enemy and hydrographic situation still clouded by question marks. Beginning the Ship to Shore Movement As the early afternoon of 15 September wore on, the continued silence of Inchon beckoned temptingly to Lt. Col. Taplet on Womido. Having studied the city over a prolonged period without detecting any significant evidence of communist defensive capability, he radioed division headquarters for permission to move a strong tank infantry force across the causeway. The battalion commander believed that 3-5 could launch either an effective reconnaissance in force or an actual assault on Red Beach. Although his estimate of the enemy potential was shortly borne out, the degree of risk in Taplet's bold plan drew a firm negative from the Mount McKinley. Busy with last-minute details aboard the command ship, General Smith at noon had Radio General Craig instructions to land on Walmido on the evening tide and set up an advanced echelon of the division command posts with the ADC group. Smith did not desire to land the remainder of his headquarters until D-plus-1, when there would be more room for dispersion within the expanding beachhead. The landing force commander could look down from the flag bridge at 1400 and notice the first signs of activity on the water. A few special landing craft were beating the forthcoming traffic rush as they sped toward the various ships to which they were assigned as command boats. At the same time, the central control vessel, Dyachenko APD-123, edged forward to its key station 3,000 yards southwest of the Blue Beach line of departure. Lieutenant Commander Allman checked the set and drift of the current and radioed his observations to Admiral Doyle. Estimated at 3.5 knots, the run of current was heavier than expected. After receiving the senior control officer's report, the attack force commander confirmed 1730 as H-hour. The confirmation went out to the entire Joint Task Force at 1430, and Admiral Higgins' fire support ships immediately commenced the final bombardment of Incheon. His four cruisers and six destroyers poured shells into the seaport for the next three hours, smashing every landmark of tactical importance and starting fires that blazed across the whole waterfront. Under the calculating eyes of tactical air observers and coordinators of F-4U's droning high above the objective area, VMFs 323 and 214 and three squadrons of Navy Sky Raiders alternately blasted Inchon, integrating their strikes with naval gunfire from H-180 minutes onward. Simultaneously, Fast Carrier Task Force 77 kept another 12 planes in the air continuously for deep support missions designed to freeze all enemy activity within a radius of 25 miles. As if enough obstacles did not confront the landing force already, rain squalls began drifting past Inchon during the bombardment. Gradually, the storm clouds merged with the thick smoke boiling up from the city and heavy overcasts settled over large areas, particularly in the vicinity of Blue Beach. Assault troops of the 5th Marine scrambled down cargo nets on the Henrico and Cavalier to fill landing craft splashing into the water from booms and davits. Nearly 200 LCVPs and 70 LCMs soon were joined by 12 LSUs and 18 LVTAs, 164 LVTs, and 85 DUKWs disgorged from the yawning wells of the LSTs, wherein the Marines of the 1st Regiment had made ready for battle. Guided by Lieutenant Commander Ralph H. Schneelock, U.S. Navy Reserve, the Horace A. Bass, Red Beach Control Vessel, slowly steamed toward the line of departure, a long file of assault craft trailing behind like a brood of ducklings. Lieutenant Theodore B. Clark, U.S. Navy, ordered the Wantuck to the head of the boat lane to Blue Beach. The PCEC-896, under Lieutenant Reuben W. Berry, U.S. Navy, took station off Walmido to regulate the wave scheduled for the administrative landing on Green Beach. At 1645, the 18 Army LVTAs comprising the first wave of the First Marines crossed the line of departure and headed for Blue Beach. Crawling at four knots, the armored vehicles had three-quarters of an hour to cover 5,500 yards to the target. The LCVPs, capable of twice the speed of the amphibian tractors, left the inter-transport area near the Dyachenko Station for the five-mile trip northward to the red and green boat lanes. The roar of the fire ships increased in volume during the approach to the landing craft until, at 1705, H-25, Admiral Higgins signaled the LSMRs into action. At once, the cruisers and destroyers fell silent. Again, missiles soared from the squat rocket ships and high arcs that sent them plunging into the red and blue landing areas. Upwards of 6,000 rockets detonated in the seaport during the next 20 minutes, further numbing the defenders but at the same time increasing the density and volume of the overcast. Seizure of Cemetery Hill The critical moment of every amphibious assault was now at hand, the moment when intelligence and planning would be put to the test of actuality. On the bridge of the Mount McKinley, high-ranking Army, Navy, and Marine Corps officers gathered again about General MacArthur, seated in a swivel chair. They listened for the second time that day as the loudspeaker gave a blow-by-blow account of developments reported by aerial observers. Everything that air attacks and naval gunfire could do to soften up the target had been done, yet no one could be sure just what sort of opposition the troops would encounter on red and blue beaches. It might be as faint-hearted as that brushed aside by 3-5 on Walmido. Or it might be that another Tarawa awaited on those cramped strips of urban waterfront lying between the mudflats and the harbor and the dark, crooked streets of the Asiatic town and environs. The enemy had been given ample time in which to prepare for a defense of the mainland. Even the possibility of undetected mines or surprise NKPA air attacks at the last minute had not been overlooked. Although the attack force continued to exercise control from the TADC on the Mount McKinley of all aircraft operating in its assigned area, an alternate control agency had been installed on the USS George Clymer, utilizing an emergency hookup and control unit attached to TAC-10 Corps. All nets were manned and communications set up to permit a rapid shift of control to General Cushman in case of disaster. With hour only minutes away, the sky above the objective was murky and the wind-whipped rain as well as stinging spray into the faces of the Marines in the assault waves. Only the Marine and Navy flyers upstairs could see the panorama of the waterborne attack, the cruisers and destroyers standing silent in the background, LSMR rocket flashes stabbing the false twilight ashore, and landing craft trailing pale wakes behind them like the tails of comets. The pilots observed the LCVPs to the left of Womido fan out at the line of departure and touch the seawall of Red Beach minutes later. To the right of the little island, however, they saw the leading waves of the 1st Marines disappear in a blanket of gloom. For while the smoke and moisture-laden air had obscured parts of the 5th Marine's zone of action ashore, it had completely blotted out Blue Beach and half the length of the 1st Regiment's boat lanes. Because of this development, and other factors which pose special problems for the 1st Marines, the narrative will treat each landing separately, beginning with that of the 5th Regiment on the left. Eight LCVPs had crossed the line of departure at H-8 and sped toward Red Beach with the first wave of the 5th Marines. Starting from the left, boats numbered 1 through 4 carried parts of two assault platoons of Company A, 1st Battalion, whose mission was to seize Cemetery Hill and anchor the regimental left. In boats 5 through 8 were troops of Company E, 2nd Battalion, whose task included clearing the right flank of the beach and taking the hill of the British Consulate. From Walmido 3 machine guns, mortars, and supporting M26s cut loose with a hail of bullets and high explosive to cover the landing. Technical Sergeant Knox led an engineer team forward to clear the causeway in order that the detachment of Able Company tanks could advance to the mainland after the initial assault waves hit the beach. As the landing craft passed the midway point of the 2,200-yard boat lane, the heaving LSMR ceased firing so that Lieutenant Colonel Walter E. Lishield and Major Arnold A. Lund could lead in VMFs 214 and 323 for final strikes on both red and blue beaches. Navy Sky Raiders joined in at the request of Captain John R. Stevens, commander of Company A, and the FAC of 1-5, 1st Lieutenant James W. Smith, controlled their strafing passes as the first wave came within 30 yards of the seawall. Although the tide was racing in fast, the wall still projected about 4 feet above the ramps of the landing craft. The Marines readied their scaling ladders. On the right, the boats of Company E touched the revetment at 1731. Up went the ladders as the assault troops hurled grenades over the wall. Following the explosions, the Marines from the four boats scrambled to the top of the barrier one by one. The ladders slipped and swayed as the LCVPs bobbed next to the wall but they served their purpose, and in short order every man of 2nd Lieutenant Edwin A. Deptula's 1st platoon was on the beach. There were no casualties from the few stray bullets cracking through the air. Filtering through smoke and wreckage, the platoon moved inland to cover the landing of the 2nd and 3rd waves, carrying the remainder of Easy Company. On the north of Red Beach, Three of the four LCVPs with the leading elements of Company A bumped the seawall at 1733. Boat No. 1, carrying Technical Sergeant Orville F. McMullen and half of his platoon, was delayed offshore by an engine failure. The remainder of the first, under the platoon guide, Sergeant Charles D. Allen, scaled the wall from Boat number 2 in the face of heavy fire from the north flank and from submachine guns in a bunker directly ahead. Several Marines were cut down immediately, the others being unable to advance more than a few yards inland. Boat number three, with 2nd Lieutenant Francis W. Mutzel and a squad of his second platoon, touched a breach in the seawall under the muzzle of an enemy machine gun protruding from a pillbox. The weapon did not fire as the Marines scrambled through the gap and onto the beach. A second squad and a 3.5-inch rocket section joined from boat number four. Gunfire crackled far off on the left, barely audible amid the roar of fighter planes strafing fifty yards ahead. Mutzel and his men jumped into a long trench which paralleled the seawall a few feet away. It was empty. Two Marines threw grenades into the silent pillbox, and the six bloody North Koreans who emerged in the wake of the hollow explosions were left under guard of a Marine rifleman. Just beyond the beach loomed Cemetery Hill its seaward side an almost vertical bluff. To avoid getting trapped if the enemy opened up from the high ground, Mutzel attacked toward his objective, the Asahi Brewery, without waiting for the remainder of his men in the tardy second wave. The skirmish line raced across the narrow beach, ignoring padlocked buildings and flaming wreckage. Passing to the south of Cemetery Hill, The 2nd platoon entered the built-up area of the city and marched unopposed up a street to the brewery. On the left of Company A's zone, the beached half of the 1st platoon made no progress against the flanking fire and the Communist bunker to the front. The 3rd platoon, under 1st Lieutenant Baldomero Lopez, landed in the 2nd wave and McMullen finally got ashore with the other half of the 1st. Both units crowded into the restricted foothold and casualties mounted rapidly. Enemy guns had felled Lopez as he climbed ashore and moved against the bunker with a grenade. Unable to throw the armed missile because of his wound, the young officer was killed when he smothered the explosion with his body to protect his men. Two marines attacked the emplacement with flamethrowers. They were shot down and their valuable assault weapons put out of action. The situation on the left was at its worst when Captain Stevens landed in Mutual's zone at H-plus-5. Learning of Lopez's death and unable to contact McMullen, he ordered his executive officer, 1st Lt. Fred F. Eubanks, Jr., to take over on the left and get them organized and moving. Time was of the essence since Cemetery Hill, objective of 1st Platoon, yet remained in enemy hands. Succeeding waves would be landing hundreds of Marines in the shadow of the cliff within the next half hour. Stevens also radioed Mutzel, whose small force had just reached the brewery without suffering a casualty, and ordered the 2nd Platoon back to the beach to help out. Mutzel immediately formed his unit in a column and struck out on the return trip to the waterfront. Nearing Cemetery Hill again, he noted that the southern slope of the vital objective was an excellent route of approach to the top. In planning Company A's part of the operation, Stevens had once told him that the 2nd Platoon could expect to help seize the high ground if the job proved too rough for the first alone. With a creditable display of judgment and initiative, Mutsu launched an assault on the key to Red Beach. The Marines moved rapidly up the incline, flushing out about a dozen red soldiers who surrendered meekly. Gaining the summit, they drove forward and saw the entire crest suddenly come alive with infantry crewmen of the 226th NKPA Regiment's mortar company. Spiritless and dazed from the pounding by air and naval gunfire, the North Koreans to a man threw down their weapons, filed quietly from the trenches and bunkers, and marched to the base of the hill where a small detachment kept them under guard. Hardly a shot had been fired by the 2nd platoon, still without a single casualty, and the capture of Cemetery Hill had required about 10 minutes. During the attack on the high ground, Eubanks had taken the situation in hand on the left of the beach. He first bested the bunker's occupants in a grenade duel, then ordered the emplacement fired by a flamethrower. Just as Mutual prepared to dispatch assistance from the top of Cemetery Hill, the 1st and 3rd platoons broke out of the pocket, drove inland to the edge of the city, and made physical contact with the second. At 1755, Stevens fired an amber star cluster signifying that Cemetery Hill was secured for the 5th Marines. The half-hour fight in the north corner of Red Beach had cost Company A eight killed and 28 wounded. Red Beach secured. After landing in 2-5's first wave, the 1st Platoon of Company E pushed inland 100 yards to the railroad tracks against no resistance whatsoever. Captain Samuel Jaskilka was ashore with the rest of the company by H 10 and reorganization took place quickly near the Nippon Flower Company buildings, just south of the beach. Deptula's platoon then moved unopposed down the railroad tracks and seized the British consulate, Regimental Objective C, at 1845. Simultaneously, another platoon cleared the built-up area across the tracks on the lower slopes of Observatory Hill. These rapid accomplishments secured the 5th Marine's right flank, giving an added measure of protection to 22 more waves of landing craft and LST scheduled for Red Beach. Still in enemy hands, however, was Observatory Hill, reaching well over 200 feet above the center of the regimental zone to buttress the arc of the OA line. Company C of the 1st Battalion, landing in the 4th and 5th waves shortly before 1800, was to take Objective A, northern half of the critical terrain feature. To Dog Company of 2-5 was charged the southern half, designated Objective B. That the attack did not go off as planned stemmed from a series of mishaps which began as far out as the line of departure. Despite the fact that Lieutenant Commander Schneelock was using standard control procedures from the bass, including radio contact with the beach, there was a mixing of waves starting with number 4. This development reflected the lack of a rehearsal in the hurried preparations for the operation, and the end result was that parts of Companies C and D, both in the second assault echelon, landed over the wrong beaches. After landing, Charlie Company had the added disadvantage of being without its company commander for a crucial 12 minutes. Captain Paul F. Peterson was delayed when the 5th Wave commander, who shared his boat, decided to tow a stalled LCVP left behind by the preceding formation. When he finally reached his company, the job of reorganization was much more difficult than it would have been had he arrived at the beach on schedule. With troops pouring over the seawall from succeeding waves, what had begun as intermingling at the point of overlap in the center of the landing area had grown to temporary congestion and confusion. LSTs Under Enemy Fire Out in the Channel, the first of eight LSTs heralded the climax of the ship-to-shore movement at 1830 by crossing the line of departure and heading for the seawall. Prior to the approach, ship's officers had spotted the close fighting on the north flank of Red Beach as they peered through binoculars from their respective bridges. Later, noting the growing knot of Marines in the center of the waterfront area, they concluded that the assault troops could not advance inland. This impression was strengthened by an abrupt procession of gun flashes on Observatory Hill where, owing to the delay in the attack by Companies C and D, A handful of enemy soldiers had recovered from shock sufficiently to set up machine guns. A few North Korean mortar crews in the city also came to life and manned their weapons. LST-859, leading the pack, came under mortar and machine gun fire as it waddled toward its berth about 1835. Gun crews on the ship reacted by opening up with 40mm and 20mm cannon, spraying cemetery and observatory hills and the right flank of the beach. Next in the column of ships, LSTs 975 and 857 likewise commenced firing after taking hits from mortars and machine guns. Enemy automatic weapons touched off a fire near ammunition trucks on LSTs 914, trailing forth, but sailors and marines quickly brought the blaze under control. Guns on the latter ship remained silent as a result of dispatch orders received by the captain after leaving the line of departure. Lieutenant Mutzel and his platoon were chased by LST fire from the crest of Cemetery Hill to the slope facing Inchon, where they came under fire from a red machine gun in a building on Observatory Hill. Fortunately, a 40mm shell from one of the LSTs crashed into the building and obliterated the enemy position. There were no casualties in Mutual's outfit, but Lieutenant Colonel Royce's 2nd Battalion did not fare as luckily from the misdirected shooting by the American ships. Weapons and H&S companies of 2-5 had landed about 1830 and were just proceeding inland when LST fires seared their ranks, killing one Marine and wounding 23 others. If it hadn't been for the thick walls of the Nippon Flower Company, remarked Royce later, the casualties might have been worse. All eight of the supply vessels were intact in their berths by 1900. Guns fell silent as soon as the LSTs touched the seawall and contact was established with the infantry. On the beach, meanwhile, 2nd Lieutenant Byron L. Magnus had reorganized his 2nd Platoon of Company C and, on his own initiative, attacked Observatory Hill. 2nd Lieutenant Max A. Merritt's 60 millimeter mortar section followed closely behind, but the rest of the company remained fragmented in the landing area. Sparked by Technical Sergeant Max Stein, who was wounded while personally accounting for a North Korean machine gun, the provisional force advanced rapidly in the gathering darkness and at 1845 seized the saddle between Objectives A and B on Observatory Hill. This was just about the time when the LST stopped firing. Since their signal flare misfired and they were not able to raise Lieutenant Peterson by radio, Magnus and Merritt were unable to inform the beach of their success. In the meantime, Company B, One Fives reserve, had landed in the 2nd Battalion zone, the waves having swerved to that area to avoid small arms fire peppering their assigned approach on the left. Captain Francis I. Fenton, Jr., led the unit through a mixed group on the waterfront to an assembly area near the base of Cemetery Hill. When he discussed the beach situation by radio with the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Newton ordered him to take over Charlie Company's mission and assault the northern half of Observatory Hill. End of Chapter 6, Part 1. Read by Aaron Bennett.